Julie, what's your favorite Halloween candy? Oh gosh, um, n- nerd, nerd rope, nerd things. Nerd ropes. Yes, but like back in the day, they didn't that didn't exist. So probably like Reese's peanut butter cups. Okay. Yeah. My favorite. That's a good question. I tend to just eat with my kids. Bring home. I like mini Twixes. Yeah. I just like good. can just di- dominate some mini Twix. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been been some big buzz recently um, that the people in California may not be able to have their Skittles anymore. Do you know anything about this? No. What do you know about the Skittles ban? Oh, uh, nothing. I don't. I just know that they have really funny, weird commercials that I'm into, and I'm a big. I'm a big Skittle fan. Yeah. 100%. So, well, ironically, it actually doesn't ban Skittles, this thing that's happening in California. Okay. So it was labeled the Skittles ban and really doesn't have anything to do with Skittles. So it's it's a complete misnomer. So we're going to go through it because people have been hearing about this. This is all over the news. Okay. Um, and it fits with our theme of uh, candy, even though it doesn't have anything to do with Skittles. I'm here for it. I would love to hear more about it. I want to dive in. You have a little fun size one for us at the end too. I do. It's actually a pretty good size fun size. So I think we're I think we're um, bottom heavy at the latter half of this week. <laughs> this, these will be two really good topics. Okay. So what actually happened was that there were four common food additives that were banned in the state of California. Got it. I'm going to list them. We're going to go into them in depth today on today's episode. Red dye number three, everybody's favorite red yeah. dye, potassium bromate brominated vegetable oil the other bro mm. and pro, uh, propyl paraben um so today i wanted to reassure my skittles fans yes. i also wanted to go through each of these individually what are they what are they in why are they being banned does the evidence support it so what do you think i think that sounds awesome i would cool. love to know that i can eat skittles and such all right we'll sit back unwrap some fun size candy and let's get into these additives yes Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen, and we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. All right, so during the break, I actually went and had a uh, one of my personal favorites, a bite-sized Snickers. Um, I'm not me when I'm hungry, so I'm feeling pretty good right now and feeling ready. You ready? Yes. Are we being paid by Snickers now? I hope so. Oh, please. That'd be great. Uh, Let's start with red dye number three. This is probably the biggest celebrity of the four. Um, We're going to spend the most time here. What do you know about red dye number three? Uh, Is it related to Mambo number five? Absolutely not. (laughs) Then that's all I know. So red dye number three is actually called erythrocin or erythrocine. I believe it's sin. But it's a pink dye, which is primarily used for food coloring. Um, Mm -hmm. It's in candies, popsicles, cake decorating gels. It's actually in a lot of things or used to be uh, in a lot of things. And it has been famous for years. Um, It had a lot of studies in the 70s and 80s, which uh, showed concerns for increased thyroid cancer. Um, And this was all done in like rats. Um, And so there has been a big push in this country to not have red dye number three in many things. In addition, there's been tons of study on just food dyes in general mm-hmm. um, in terms of what it does to both us and also our developing kids' brains. And and so di- food dyes have, are always in the news to a certain extent. But red dye number three has always been kind of the 
the the poster child of why we shouldn't have dyes in our food. Um, the primary cancers that I talked about, again, was increased thyroid adenomas and adenocarcinomas. Um, and these were uh, rats that were exposed to this erythrocin. This ultimately led to actually a partial ban in the cosmetics and topical drugs that the FDA put in. But it allowed us to still consume them in food. And um, This was in 1990. Okay. Um, in the same year, there was a... Uh, study that came out in the journal Toxicology and Applied Pharmacology that concluded that chronic erythrocin ingestion may promote thyroid tumor formation in rats by chronic stimulation of the thyroid by TSH. Basically, if you're eating erythrocin or red dye number three for a longer period of time, you are stimulating your thyroid nonstop. Somehow the erythrocin continues to stimulate the thyroid and therefore causes potential tumors. That's what the study uh, said. Now, I went and reviewed this study, which um, was actually very difficult because it was from 1990 and it had really small font and it was not the most thrilling read I've ever had in my entire life. However, as is the case on your doctor friends, we did the work for you. Yes, you can do (laughs) hard things, Jeremy. (laughs) The rats were fed a diet of 4% of total daily dietary intake of erythrocin B for three weeks. And then they had weight and thyroid tests performed after that. So I was like, I still don't really understand what that means. Also, three weeks doesn't seem very long. No. So 4% of total daily dietary intake meant approximately 2,400 milligrams per kilogram per day. So break that again, 2,400 milligrams, but that was per kilogram. So if okay. I, let's just pretend a rat weighed three kilograms, then it would be three <laughs> times that. Maybe it's a Chicago rat, potentially. Yeah. Gosh. Well, I don't know. Is that is that a, is that a big rat? How much does a rat weigh? How much is a kilogram, sir? Isn't it two point uh, two pounds? You want a rat that weighs six point six pounds? I think that's that what rat rats would have weigh? been having a lot of. Uh, th- that was actually pretty good to pull all that out of your head there, uh, your doctor friend. Well done. It's because I'm wearing my teacher sweater from my my mother-in-law Linda. Well, so let's just apply a human. So a mm-hmm. kilogram, uh, you know, like uh, I feel like kids are what, like tw- let's use 20 kilograms sure. for like a, a, a growing child. That and works. if they had 2,400 milligrams per kilogram per day, that would be, you know, 20 times 2,400. That's a lot of milligrams is Got what it. I'm trying to get across. Gotcha. So they also did a 0.5%, which was 300 milligrams per kilogram per day. And then a 1%, which was 600 milligrams per kilogram per day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought what the interesting thing here was the 4% one did show that the thyroid test started to show problems. The mm-hmm. thyroid was getting bigger and there was concern for a tumor. The weight of the actual rat went down, which makes sense. Think about hyperthyroidism. But at the 0.5% and 1%, there was no change. So you huh. had to be at the 4% to get a change. And so then I looked it up. I went to everybody's favorite research tool, Google, and said, how much do we ingest of erythrocin on a daily basis? Like, what does the average person consume if we just, in our daily lives right now? And the number that I found was 0.23 milligrams per kilogram per day. goodness gracious. So they were, like, flooding these rats with this dye. And even, like, when it was a moderate amount, which is still crazy milligrams. Yeah, crazy more than we ever get uh, exposed to. Um, they were still fine. And also, I agree with you, too. Three weeks doesn't, especially when it comes to thyroid things. I mean, think about how frequently you have to check someone's TSH, you know, their thyroid simulating hormone, if you change their thyroid hormone uh, pill by yes. 20 micrograms. You have to you have to wait six weeks to check it. So this Correct. study seems dumb. Yeah, so it's interesting. They made a change based on this, right? Yeah. They, they said it can't be in our cosmetics and in our topical stuff. You can still eat it. Uh, but, <laughs> Which, like, what? But, 
Yeah, so, but I was interested because this study just doesn't seem to, like, change anything for no. me. In addition to that, I, 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 three weeks at this dose doesn't really mirror what we do. We take a smaller dose, but we do it for years, right? Yeah. We do it, I mean, like, we start having red dye number three probably when we start eating regular processed food, and then sure. we do it for the rest of our lives. So it just doesn't mirror how we consume it in any form mm -hmm. or fashion. All right, so I found another study from that same journal. So the... Journal of Toxicology and Applied Pharmacology appears to like to do these studies. This was from 1987, so now we're going back in the annals. Um, and this looked at thyroid function. You know function the word is annals, right? It's not annals? I just learned that. <laughs> I mean, you can say annals. It's funnier. I know. This is a Halloween episode. I called it annals. <laughs> Keep going. Human centipede. Yes. So we looked at it looked at thyroid function among 30 men. Of course, it had to be only men divided into three groups uh, with each taking a different daily dose of erythrocin. So 20, 60 and 200 milligrams. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, they didn't have a control group. I don't really understand that concept. Yeah, but uh, the Washington Post reported this uh, study. They like had a uh, they have a recent article because, again, mm -hmm. of the new ban. And they referenced this in their own uh, um interpretation saying there were no differences however the 200 milligram group did have a higher tsh when i went and looked at it so okay. i'm not sure why the washington post reported it as having no differences it's because if you read the abstract they say there were no differences but then if you go look at the study the 200 milligram group did have a higher tsh which is the higher thyroid stimulating hormone which is again what the concern was so right at a higher dose there actually was something okay. and then the researchers blamed this higher uh, tsh on the iodine rather than the erythrocin. So like mm -hmm. the erythrocin, it, it can, has an iodine attached to it and it increases the iodine in our blood. And we know iodine affects the thyroid. Mm -hmm. And so they blamed it all on the iodine and not on the erythrocin. And I'm not sure that really makes any sense. So, no. but either way. So long story short is my interpretation of this study is again, with higher exposure, the TSH did go up. So I don't think that there was no difference. I think there was a difference. Okay. Again, pretty small study, 30 people divided into 10, 10 and 10, no control group for no reason. And also just men, but. Yeah. What year was this? Because you said the original was 1990. Yeah, so this was a, a 1987 study. Oh, so the reason it. why this study was even referenced was the people who, you know, they, they made the change and erythrocin was not allowed anymore mm -hmm. after 1990 in this partial ban. But the people who were pro-erythrocin said, look at this 1987 study. It showed no difference ah. because that's what the abstract says. But it did show a difference at the 200 milligram group. Gotcha. So okay. I'm not sure uh, how they can uh, say that. Either way, um, both of them required very high dosages, as we've already put out. All right. So since that time, there have been multiple calls for a complete ban without movement until the recent California ban, which happened um, again uh, over the last few weeks. Um, that ban should be noted that the actual ban will not happen until 2027, but they okay. have signed it into law. Gavin Newsom did sign it. So <laughs> prior to this California ban, erythrocin was already banned as a food additive in the European Union, Japan, China, the United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand. So the USA, as I mentioned, it is banning cosmetics and topical drugs, but it can be used to color food and ingested drugs without any restrictions so hmm. we're kind of it's banned in all these places and i always think it's interesting that we're the ones that allow it to still happen yeah so the other thing too due to concerns that synthetic food dyes as i mentioned not just red dye number three but synthetic food dyes overall may impact behavior in children you may have heard 
people worried about yeah. like these food dyes causing our kids to have like more behavioral problems. Sure. This prompted the California Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment, O-E-H-H-A. Okay. So it's not even a fun acronym, but mm-hmm. it exists. Mm-hmm. Um, they did uh, more or less what I would call a systematic review, and they did find that more than half the studies they reviewed showed a statistically significant association between the food dyes and increased behavioral problems, particularly attention and activity. Um, they also found that the lowest observed adverse effect dose, meaning the lowest amount you have to take to get a problem, was below the max dosages allowed by the FDA. So the FDA says, this is the max we allow in a food. Mm-hmm. And then when they found in their review people taking dosages that were smaller than that but still had an effect. So maybe those max dosages the FDA allows are too high. So they recommended more research to determine max doses in kids specifically. So. Long story short, a lot of controversy. Much of it is fueled by the fact that the FDA bans it in makeup, but I'm allowed to eat it, and my right. kids are allowed to eat it too, uh, which doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, this partial ban. What is your reaction so far? I just get so scared about, um, or I just have my red flags go up when we talk about studies about either something in the environment or something in food or something that that children are exposed to, and then there's a correlation between some type of behavioral disease. Not that I don't think that those studies should happen. I absolutely didn't think that they should. But I, I think it requires a lot of great explanation and context so that it doesn't turn into, I don't know, another Andrew Wakefield debacle. Uh-huh. That's no, it's a really good point, that. right? Mm-hmm. Because again, like we're all looking for reasons why either our own children or grad, you know, the entire world of children yeah. are showing more signs of, you know autism or more signs of right things that we don't feel like we have a great understanding or control of that are not yeah i I agree and i and again i'm not trying to say like we shouldn't look into these things it's just be 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 extra skeptical when it comes to well just be vigilant folks (laughs) i don't know well (laughs) your your doctor your doctor friend's statement on that would be is that There are tons of factors that yeah. play into that, and it's very unlikely that one specific food Correct. dye is causing the problem. So even if there's an association, it does not mean that it is implicated as the only problem, and there's so many variables. Now, that is also not to say that the food dyes are good and that we uh, say sure. that we should keep adding them. No. That's not the same statement. So Agreed. here's my takeaways. Erythrocin, a.k.a. red dye number three, may increase risk for thyroid cancer. I can't say that that doesn't happen based on the data that I've seen here. Yeah. The studies are weak. They were mostly in animals. I just, but also it's not something where I look at this data and say it doesn't happen at all. In addition, like the the studies that exist right now don't mirror what we do. They gave a ton of this stuff to rats over a three-week period. Mm -hmm. And I think we should have studies that give it to them over short, you know, smaller amounts for long periods of time. time. Um, The problem is that rats don't live very long. Yeah, well, so that's the reason. Actually, it's a really good point. Yeah. That's part of the reason why they do it this way, because the lifespan is shorter. So by giving them more, we w- the correlation is sure. because they have shorter lifespans, the actual more dosage is similar to our lower dosage, yeah, smaller bodies and things like that. Got it. Okay. It's like a rat is a human. If you compact everything, you make yes. the, 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 the body smaller, you make the, the lifespan smaller. Yeah. Okay. It's so interesting. I feel like when you talked about your studies, like the concerns about um, all of the chemicals in crumb rubber causing uh, or being, you know, potentially correlated with cancers, blood cancers, yeah. it sounded uh-huh. like. And it seems like the opposite 
um, policy changed happened. It was like, nope, we don't. It, th- there wasn't enough evidence to say that you shouldn't play soccer on these fields and go mm. do stuff. Whereas the, I feel like the exact opposite is happening now. It's like this die seems baddish. The data kind of sucks, but we're going to make sweeping policies to get rid of it for probably, to be honest, probably some political reason. Correct. Well, there probably is something there about our attitudes towards youth sports versus our t- attitudes towards food. Yes, you you can you can put your finger right on your Grover nose on the top of your head. Yes, the one that is on my forehead, the pink Grover nose. Um, I, I I personally, after reading this, felt like I think red dye number three seems like an easy thing to ban. I don't have sure. a strong feeling on that it should be in things, whether it's causing a problem or not. Um, I also thought it was interesting to note that. This controversy has existed since the 70s and 80s, as I already told you. Yeah. And so a lot of this red dye number three has actually been pulled out of products voluntarily. Mm. Um, more common to see um, red dye number 40 um, in United yeah. States products these days anyways. And I really didn't see much research on red dye number 40. Now, I will promise I also didn't look into red dye number 40 very much because I wanted people to keep listening to the episode. Right. That's WD-40, right? That's the same thing? Yes. No, it's not. <laughs> But the real name for red dye number 40 is Allura Red AC, which sounded fun. Allura. Oh, Allura. Yeah, perfect. All right, um, cool. That was the biggest one. Um, I'm going to fly through the three other ones because Bad. I didn't want to do as deep of a dive. And again, I wanted people to stay interested. So <laughs> let's start with potassium bromate. Yeah. Do you know anything about potassium bromate? Uh, Outside of that, it's a, it's a chemical. But like, do you know what it's used for? I do not. It's used in the United States as a flower enhancer. So it acts to strengthen dough and allow it to uh, rise higher. Um, it's an oxidizing agent and under the right conditions will completely be reduced to bromide, um, in the baking process. So in that case, you wouldn't be consuming potassium bromate. You'd be consuming bromide. Um, but if you add too much, the bread is not baked long enough Mm. or at not a high enough temperature, there can be residual amounts of potassium bromate and thus we would be consuming it. So, uh, potassium bromate is considered a 2B carcinogen by the IARC. Remember them, mm-hmm. Julie? Remember all the work you did on them? Aspartame. Yep. Yeah. So, our aspartame episode went through the IARC uh, very well. So, listen to that mm-hmm. episode if you want the background on them. But a 2B carcinogen is uh, possibly carcinogenic. Um, and the cancers we're talking about here are renal tubular adenomas, so mm-hmm. uh, kidney tumors, thyroid follicular tumors. So, the thyroid seems to come up a lot here. Yeah. And then peritoneal mesothelial. Uh, mesotheliomas. Um, And this was all in rats and mice. There were no human studies. And then in the studies I saw here, no dosing was really mentioned. So it was hard to tell like Hmm. what the doses were. Um, Potassium bromate has been banned from food products in the European Union, Argentina, Brazil, Canada, Nigeria, South Korea, Peru, Sri Lanka, China, uh, India. It is allowed in most of the United States until this California ban. So it's so interesting how these things are just like banned everywhere else but we allow them it's just so interesting yeah and i feel like the u.s is sort of known as having one of the more restrictive like the fda yeah exactly Mm -hmm. i want to know because it's a baking flour related thing what paul hollywood thinks about this yeah uh, he thinks it's uh uh, crisp and uh really with a nice with a nice rise yeah no soggy bottoms no soggy bottoms um i any other questions about potassium bromate no i mean uh Again, sort of seems like weak evidence, but making sweeping policy changes. But again, is it one of those things that taking it off markets and banning it harms people? I I don't know what the butterfly effect to that really is. 
I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they may have to find other things to replace it with sure. to get them to do that stuff. Um, but, I, you know, I have some, like, generalizations I'll make at the end kind of okay. about all of them. Sure. Um, I want to get into the next uh, bro, the uh, yes. brominated vegetable oil, a.k.a. BVO. Brominated vegetable oil is used primarily to help emulsify citrus-flavored soft drinks. Hmm. It prevents them from separating during distribution. So to get the citrus flavor, yeah, if this was not in there, a lot of times you'd have separation, and that would be gross. We wouldn't really like to drink that. Okay. Um, um, BVO has a specific density greater than that of water, so as a result, it can be mixed with less dense flavoring agents, such as citrus flavor oil, to produce a resulting oil that has the same density as water. Okay. So you take the higher density, and you make the less dense citrus flavor, they put it together, get the same density as the water, and so it stays in the product and does not separate out. Gotcha. Droplets containing BVO remain suspended in water rather than separating and floating to the surface. Nobody likes opening a can of anything and seeing some floating shit on the top. Like a skim onto the top. <laughs> Gross. Of my, fre- of my fresca. Yes. <laughs> so you can understand why BVO was used. Yeah. Um, now, interestingly enough, Pepsi and Coke, uh, Coca-Cola, mm-hmm. as would probably be the two largest producers of citrus-flavored uh, soft drinks, mm-hmm. voluntarily removed this in 2014. I mean, it's been gone for almost a decade Got from it. them. So where do you find these? Because they are still in things. It's usually in the generic citrus sodas that are like grocery store flavored Mm. so like walmart has mountain lightning and dollar general has clover valley and orange annette and stars and stripes so you know when you go in and you see the generic versions of these things if you look on the back you'll see um brominated vegetable oil in those so i'm a generic girly i'm i'm into that so i mean i don't buy a ton of soda pop but the stuff that i do buy sometimes is off brand because yeah and i think a lot of times when we talk about generics we're usually like oh it's probably the same thing it's probably even made in the same factory but in this case it actually does have a different uh, composition because pepsi and coke took this out got it um uh, as is the theme here, it's banned in the EU, Japan, and India. Canada mm-hmm. still allows it, and I didn't see anything on China, because that was the interesting so far, is I feel like I saw China has banned everything to date that we've talked about. Well, we still allow it, and I feel like that's usually not our thought process. Usually, yeah. we feel like China probably allows the things yeah. that we are banning, but so, but China didn't talk about this one. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1970, the FDA limited the use of BVO as a food additive on an interim basis due to some concerns raised in rodent studies conducted in the late 1960s. Mm-hmm. These studies were done on test animals that were fed BVO at levels that far exceeded estimates of most human consumption, but raised concerns about possible effects on the heart. Does that sound familiar, Julie? Like r- levels very highly, uh, far yes. exceeding what we usually consume. Like everything. But 1960s yeah. rats, weren't they all just smoking cigarettes all the time anyway? <laughs> no, we allowed the doctors to smoke the cigarettes as they were doing the rat research. <laughs> exactly. So secondhand smoke for the rats. Sure. Um, these concerns were resolved by later studies in the 1970s. Um, so they allowed BVO to be used again. Okay. And then on May 16th, 2022, the FDA published their own um study on this in the Journal of Food and Chemical Toxicology. It evaluated potential health effects related to BVO consumption in rodents. They measured uh, the amounts of BVO uh, present in animal food and brominated fats in tissues from test animals. They also fed animals amounts of BVO that were near our estimated BVO consumption for the people who consume BVO at high levels to better simulate real life experience. So that's nice, right? Maybe some evolution here where we're trying to simulate what we do. Um, And the data from the study uh, suggested that oral exposure to BVO is associated with increased tissue levels of bromine and that at high levels of exposure, the thyroid is a target organ of potential negative health effects in rodents. So additional study to identify the level of BVO in the body after consumption of BVO is being finalized. So it's not completely done, but not the most um, reassuring of studies, to be honest. Um, So 
the FDA seems to be all over this one. In fact, it's the one that has the most study from just the FDA that I looked at from all these. So okay. any questions about BVO? No, I think that one's pretty well covered. Yeah, we're passing out of the bros. We, we finished the bros. Yeah. So last, lastly, we have propylparaben. Do you know what parabens are? Have you um, heard of parabens? I know that they're not good for you, and I um, try to make sure they're not in my shampoo and hand soap. Perfect. That was really well done. Many people may be familiar with the term parabens from cosmetics. They're mm-hmm. often advertised like when you buy your product. It's like paraben free. And phthalate um, you, free. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, I don't, I, I'm glad this is paraben good. free. That sounds good. <laughs> Yay. Awesome. <laughs> What's a paraben? I don't care. I'm glad it's not in there. <laughs> yeah. So in this case, the ban is in foods, right? It's from California. So it has nothing to do with your cosmetics. Um, mm-hmm. Propyl paraben is commonly used as a preservative in packaged baked goods, particularly okay. in pastries and tortillas. It's an antimicrobial, antifungal. It prevents them from growing in foods. Gotcha. So it keeps the bacteria from, from growing. It gets in the way of that. Um, this had one of the weakest amounts of literature I could find. Mm-hmm. There was only one study I could find um, showing a possible link to issues in rats. This study was from 2013, and it was in the Egyptian Journal of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology okay. that fed propylparaben to adult male rats and found issues with toxic uh, toxicity to the liver mm-hmm. and to the sex hormone, specifically testosterone. So. Um, parabens frequently are linked to the sex hormone problem. People are worried that it's getting in the way of testosterone and estrogen and things and things like that. So that's where this comes from. Again, this was one where they fed it for four weeks, um, and I could not get actually access to the full study because it was an Egyptian journal um, to see the dosing. Um, but again, okay. it was it seems like it was probably set up very similar. Give them high amounts over four weeks and see what happens. Hmm. Otherwise, I found nothing on any website that said that propylparaben does anything bad to us except for causing irritation to skin, which likely explains why we removed it from our cosmetics. And so all these these four substances were part of the California ban. Correct. I'm just I'm just looping back to the beginning. So like Gavin Newsom decided that it was time to make this big thing happen and it probably looks really good and it's like, hey, we're protecting our people from harmful stuff that they're ingesting. But really like I don't know it's uh, low-level evidence for much of this. Yeah, so just real quick on propylparaben, it's regulated yeah. uh, for food in the EU, but not cosmetics. So they mm. actually do the opposite, which is interesting. Hmm. And I did not see bans in any other countries. The data was hard to find. It was I couldn't. I was searching specific countries and couldn't find it very easily. So it. it may be banned in some places. So don't completely trust me on, on that specific part. Um, yes, so uh, Congress in California suggested these bans. They voted it through. Gavin Newsom signed it through. I do not know if it was his platform or not, but he definitely supported it. Um, And you're right. I mean, I think that these, and and just a real quick to, you you said go back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. Uh, None of these are in Skittles. Oh, yay! (laughs) So thing of Halloween candy here. I'm just going to gorge on Skittles later. So I'm not completely sure why this was labeled the Skittles ban, but that was why it got so much press as people thought that Skittles were being banned oh in God, California so and it did not go over well. There were the the, the taste of the rainbow clubs rose up no. and said this is not not okay. Uh-uh. Um, yeah, I, I think you did a good job of getting into the summary because we're done with all of them. I think that ultimately we've been encouraging fresh, unprocessed foods for a very yep. long time. Yep. Fresh, unprocessed foods won't have any of these things in them. Yeah. So... The problem for me, and I think we've also talked about this on this podcast a lot, is that fresh, unprocessed food is not widely accessible to everybody. True. Right? Social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who cannot afford it or don't live close enough to it. And so they have to still buy food for themselves and their families. And I don't think it's a good thing that we are putting things in these foods that these people can't 
you know, like this is the food that they can afford right. that may be causing problems. Like that, again, is leading to social determinants of health, leading to different outcomes in health. Yeah. So I don't know if these four things were causing cancer, but I am all for public health policy trying to protect people. Sure. And I have no problem with these bans. I think encouraging more transparency from companies on what ingredients are going into their products is always a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think the best thing that happens is things like where Pepsi and Coke removed it by themselves and said, fine, this is probably not good. We'll find something else and, and we'll go with that. Right. Um, one final fact for me, New York uh, State is voting on all of these, um, and it's probably going to ban them next. Um, okay. So you'll hear about that coming up soon. There was a fifth one that was on the California list. It was titanium, I believe, dioxide. They removed it, uh, meaning it was not in the ban. Um, and I didn't go into that one. So okay. any other closing reactions? No, I think you're right. I like the point that you made. You know, sometimes these chemicals are like preservatives that make things shelf stable are what make food edible for longer periods of time. And I think we even talked about in our Tuesday episode about you touched briefly on like canned foods versus fresh foods. I would love to have a food science person or a dietitian or somebody come on and tell us about, you know, nutritive values of different types of preparing and storing of foods, because I feel like there's so much information everywhere about that. And I would love to, you know, plant that seed pun intended now about it because you know I think the other thing like like the the folks on unbiased science pod who we adore talk about like your body's a big bag of chemicals you know like so is your food and that's okay sometimes but I think it is smart to be very cognizant of what of are some of these chemicals correlated with actual problems and disease and if we do need to meet people where they are and give people shelf stable foods because Maybe they don't have access to things that decompose very quickly or whatever for a lot of different reasons. Let's probably do our best to make sure that the things that make them shelf-stable don't give you thyroid cancer. Yeah. I I, I think you saying that really brought back for me the, the summary statement that we say all the time. Dose and exposure matters. Yeah. And... Just like with aspartame, none of these four things showed anything in studies that the levels that we're consuming them, that we're all getting cancer from them. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that we need to go crazy and say red dye number three is killing everybody in this country. And sometimes we overreact to news stories like this. Now, granted, vice versa, I don't particularly think that having these things in food is all that like we should definitely keep them in there and stand up for things like them the way we stand up for things like aspartame because I don't think red dye number three is helping people's health the way that not consuming sugar maybe would be a good thing for people's health. And then the last thing that is readily accessible to everybody, not fresh, you know, like unprocessed foods, but moderation, right? You're probably not going to get cancer if you don't drink 70 citrus sodas a day, right? Because BVO is going to be in that, but you're not having a million of them every single day. Yeah. So if you like citrus soda and you like the generic one, just have less of it. Yeah. Don't have a high consumption of it, you know, and and you're probably going to be fine. Yeah. Heard. All right. What fun size one you got for me? My fun size one is is lighthearted and and fun, but very uh, on brand for Halloween. Halloween week. Get it. Can I just quickly say that I am sweating like a mother in this Grover costume? <laughs> you can take Grover off. I am not sweating in my sweater. Uh, my I amazing... am committed for the podcast, this I audio know. version of stuff that we put out for people that I am doing a visual medium for. Yeah, you're, you're basically wearing a Snuggie. I am. Yeah, it's cute. It's very cute. All right, Jeremy, have you ever watched or played The Last of Us? No, what's The Last of Us? Oh, <gasps> it's good. Okay, so even if you're not a sci-fi person or a horror person or a gamer person, I think that 
Pedro Pascal is universally appealing to the masses. T- tell me I'm wrong. Uh, you're wrong. <laughs> because you don't even know who Pedro Pascal is. No, yes. He's the original zaddy. Let's be serious here. So um, <laughs> this is a little uh, not terribly current, but it is because it's Halloween week. So The Last of Us was a video game. There is a video game that was huge, enormous. And then it was turned into by, I believe, AMC. I'd have to look that up or maybe HBO Max, whatever, into a series, um, a television series starring Pedro Oh, Pascal. it was HBO Max. I yes. seen, okay. I, yeah, I've yeah, seen yeah, it. Yeah. The Last okay, of Us. Got okay, got it. The Last of Us. So good. Loved it, loved it, loved it. So in the game slash series, humans can become infected by cordyceps fungus, which turns them into the killer zombies that are hellbent on murdering and infecting the next human, right? It's gruesome, and it's awesome, and it's won a bunch of awards, and... Yeah, it has uh, the girl that was in, I forget what her name is. The one from Game of Thrones, where she was the little bear. She was amazing. I think so. She's in Game of Thrones. It was a Game of Thrones reunion to some degree, too. It's a very good show. It's very fun, even if you're... Um, not super into sci-fi and horror. It's great. And I got it. I got the DVD set for my dad and he adored it. Uh, What's a dad's... DVD? Shut up. Something my dad watches. He's 78. <laughs> Grover likes DVDs. <laughs> Get out of here. All right. So um, the cordyceps fungus has real roots in real science. And the creator of The Last of Us, Neil Don't Druckmann. Don't do this to us. No, it's great. I will not sleep tonight. I'm taking you down this road. So yeah, the the creator of The Last of Us, Neil Druckmann, was reportedly inspired by a real life parasitic fungus. Shit. All right. So then I got down this road of what I watched a video from Hostile Planet by Nat Geo, and it's hosted by Bear Grylls. What does oh. Bear Grylls make you think of? Uh, I forget the name of this thing, but usually doing crazy, stupid shit. Yeah, I think of drinking your own pee to like survive in the desert or something like that was a thing that Bear Girls taught you how to do. Um, and it was accompanied by an article about insects that are hijacked by parasitic fungi that control their every move. It's so good. First of all, I- I'll link in the show notes to this video from Hostile Planet. National Geographic will always have a huge place in my heart. When I was a little kid, my aunt and uncle who have since passed away got me a years, years, years subscription to National Geographic. And then it, one, one was called World, which was like the one for little kids. And it just, I think it's part of the reason why I'm a physician, <laughs> because it, it just got me so interested in nature and science. And I just could never, thanks, thanks so much, Uncle Don and Auntie Margie. But um, Nat Geo is unbelievable. And some of the footage they get, I do not understand. Like this video is unreal like they go into the jungle and it's probably weeks of time lapse video of watching this happen so i'll go watch it it's amazing i'll link it in the show notes but let me give you sort of a verbal version of what goes on so and a lot of this is going to be quoting from the article um so the ophiocordyceps unilateralis fungus has just one goal self-propagation and dispersal so researchers think that the fungus that's found in tropical forests infects a foraging ant through spores that attach and penetrate the exoskeleton and slowly takes over its behavior. I know it's so good. As the infection advances, the enthralled ant is compelled to leave its nest for a more humid microclimate that's favorable for the fungus's growth. Mm. And then the ant is compelled to descend to a vantage point about 10 inches off the ground and it sinks its jaws into a leaf vein on the north side of a plant and it waits for death. It has like this death bite that it has to do and it just stays there. 
So meanwhile, the fungus feeds on its innards until it's ready for its final stage. So then several days after the ant has died, the fungus sends a fruiting body. It's like this like little um, like tendril that comes out and through the base of the ant's head, turning the ant's shriveled corpse into a launch pad from which it can jettison its spores and infect new ants. It is so cool. The video is unbelievable. So, and then also, as in zombie lore, there's an incubation period where infected ants appear perfectly normal and go about their business undetected by the rest of the colony, which is unusual because social in- insects like ants usually have something called social immunity, where they basically like kick out a sick yeah one they can to tell. prevent, but they can't with this one. So oh, like, no. while infection is 100% lethal, the goal isn't to convert all of the ants into the walking dead. So, so for the ecosystems to stay balanced, the fungi have to keep their host populations in check. So really only a few ants in each colony are infected at any given time. And here's the other surprising part. Ophiocordyceps unilateralis doesn't actually infect the brain. Its fungus casts this sort of mind control through bioactive substances that can control the muscles directly. So it's not even found in their brains at all. This so interesting. I love it. Well, don't worry. I'm going to get into a point of where you're, where you're, the million dollar question, which I know you're going to ask. So all in all, research have identified, researchers have identified over 200 species of Ophiocordyceps that can infect hosts from about 10 different insect orders, as well as spiders. Although not all of these infections lead to behavioral manipulation. Some of these um, infections tend to actually be symbiotic. So some of these species have replaced the symbiotic relationship that's reserved for like gut bacteria in these insects microbiome. So for example, it's like helpful in some cases. So the Japanese cicadas with Ophiocordyceps in their gut, it helps them process nutrients from sap and doesn't turn them into zombies. Isn't that rad? Oh, this stuff is just, I'm like dying. Okay, so what do you think the million dollar question, what do you want to ask, Jeremy, about this this uh, parasitic fungus? Can this parasitic fungus infect blue puppet-based... Uh, <laughs> Human uh, beings. Sesame Street characters. <laughs> are you asking for Grover or are you asking for Jeremy Allen? I think actually I was going to ask, like, is is this something that could eventually affect a human? Yes. Okay. So this is great. Is so The can- Last of Us possible? <laughs> I love it. This was the next article that I went to that was made by Nat Geo. So can parasitic fungi like the Ophiocordyceps ever infect humans? So Joao um, Araujo, Araujo, I'm going to get that wrong. And he's an expert on parasitic fungi at the New York Botanical Garden, states that the fungus and insect relationship has been co-evolving for 45 million years. Sure. So for the fungus to move to any type of warm-blooded animal would require some serious evolutionary work. And, quote, if the fungus really wanted to infect mammals, it would require millions of years of genetic changes. Okay, so there's that's one. Also, we are too hot for fungi. Oh, Even though sense. our standard body temp is different than we have thought. Thanks for clarifying, Jeremy. Um, so this, this like, uh, onesie, like, Snuggie that I'm wearing is actually protective because <laughs> I am sweating. You're too hot. You're not going to get yes. infected by cordyceps if you wear your Grover Snuggie. So the thing that's protected us from serious fungal infections are our own warm bodies. Most fungal species prefer a range of 77 to 86 degrees Fahrenheit, which mm. is maybe why the fungal infections that we do get more commonly affect, like, our skin folds, like candida. You know, like people get like athlete's foot and like, you know, um, fungal infections in like their external ear or like their armpits and stuff or their groin. Um, However, 
bum, 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 climate change may allow fungi to get used to warmer temperatures and potentially evolve to be able to survive inside the human body, which is actually part of the story, backstory behind The Last of Us, was that mm-hmm. we created the situation that made these fungi able to kill us. So one real-world connection that is actually real and true and something we probably should be aware of and maybe a little bit concerned about. So there's an example called Candida auris, A-U-R-I-S, has adapted to higher temperatures until it now infects mainly people that are immunocompromised or have, that are medically complicated, like are in a ventilator or have a trach and that kind of stuff. Um, It can enter their skin, their ears, or even cause bloodstream infections. And the CDC states that, that Candida auris is, quote, an emerging fungus that presents a serious global health threat. Um, this is from an article of the Annals of Internal Medicine, states that uh, Candida auris infections have risen dramatically from 2019 till 2021. And per- what's particularly concerning is their resistance to antifungal medications. So here's a real world example of potentially a fungus that is causing more infections and it's because of global climate change that's that's making it more uh, likely for it to infect humans, but it does nothing to uh, make us become um, zombie killer uh, people who want to eat brains. Yet. Yet, exactly. But, and uh, dedicated listeners of the Your Doctor Friends podcast will also know that our temperature isn't as high as we once thought it was. Exactly. So... I'm terrified. Thank you. I will You're welcome. Happy Halloween slash happy uh, Dia de los Muertos. You did remind me that uh, when this show came out, there were all those episodes and things all over social media about like, can this really happen to us? I do remember that happening. So, so thank you for taking us through it. You're very welcome. Well, um, I think knowledge is power mm-hmm. and understanding what's in your food is important and powerful. Mm-hmm. But I also don't think we need to overreact because dose and exposure matters. Agreed. Listen to, listen to your doctor, friends. And Pedro Pascal is the original Zaddy. Goodbye. <laughs> the amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. Music